0: Hi, and welcome back to the 10th episode of the Pathfinders Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Dr. Andrew Jenkinson, who is a consultant, a surgeon at the prestigious University College London Hospital, and a weight loss researcher and expert. Dr. Andrew Jenkinson has a new book out called Why We Eat Too Much, and this explores the world of dieting, weight loss, and how a lot of what we have been taught isn't necessarily true. The book is backed up by a lot of research and science, and this was a topic I was extremely fascinated to learn more about. This interview explores why most people fail to diet, the sugar and fat industry war that took place, the importance of our metabolism and insulin, and most importantly, what a weight anchor is, how we all have them, and why this could be the key to controlling our weight. Before we get into today's issue, if you would like to support the podcast, then the best way to do so is by visiting the 99% Lifestyle store. We have six publications out now, and they all share stories, work, and thoughts from the world's leading professionals and creatives. It's a bit similar to what we do on the podcast, but each magazine has around 20 different creatives inside, and, Each article features a new creative and a different topic. There was only 1,000 to 3,000 issues of each publication printed and Volume 3 now looks like it will soon sell out. There are only 15 copies left of Volume 3 and once that sells out we won't be printing anymore. So if you would like to grab a copy of Volume 3 then do so whilst you can. Now let's get into today's episode with Dr. Andrew Jenkinson.
1: my name's Andrew Jenkinson and I'm a bariatric surgeon who does weight loss surgery at UCLH and I wrote the book which is a Sunday Times bestseller called Why We Eat Too Much, The New Science of Appetite," which looks into the reason why people can't sustain weight loss.
0: Yeah, brilliant and um, could you tell me a bit about, more about your early life, like how you got into this field of work?
1: Um, yeah, so I... Scraped into medical school um, with minimal grades. Uh, Went to Southampton Medical School. Had a great time there. And then decided to I wanted to become a surgeon. My first experience of the operating theatre was fantastic. Um, I remember the bright lights shining on uh, someone. We were operating on someone's groin. It was in. It was a. An old-fashioned varicose vein operation. The sort of iodine on the skin, and then the drapes, the green drapes around it, and the bright lights. And I remember when the surgeon took out his shiny scalpel, shine reflected on the light, and cut into the groin, and all the blood started coming out. Just as I was thinking, "Yeah, this is what I want to do." My colleague, my friend, Soddy, who's a big, seat guy, just collapsed and fell over all into the tubing. <laughs> Uh, That was my first experience with theatre. He became a psychiatrist, and I said, yeah, I want to do surgery. So, uh, yeah, I remember that one Mm. forever.
0: Mm. And where was it you became um, interested in the whole whole aspect of weight loss and people um, being healthy with their bodies in terms of weight? How did that start?
1: So, really, that was something, you know, sometimes life just... Unfolds, and you get exposed to these things. I had no interest in you know dieting and healthy eating at all. I happen to be from a family that doesn 't suffer with obesity, so you know i've never been interested in in diets and things but um Obviously, I was a surgeon and I was operating on stomachs, doing some cancer surgery and then a job came up uh, in East London at the Homerton Hospital as a consultant where they did weight loss surgery, so I took that job because it was with some uh, good colleagues that, uh, that, that I got on with, um, and learned how to do weight loss surgery, uh, which technically is, you know, at first quite difficult, but, you know, I, I got through the learning curve and was able to do it quite well. So I was then exposed to a lot of people who had been dieting and failing to lose weight for, you know, many, many, many years. And that's what then sort of piqued my interest of, you know, why, why are these people who, should be able to do something pretty simple, just eat a little bit less food and exercise a bit more. Why, why are they asking me to do something so drastic as take their stomach out? So I thought the sort of two didn't really end up and they had very, very similar stories, these patients. Um, so I thought that maybe there was something that the medical profession and, you know, our mainstream understanding of dieting and exercise, maybe we weren't sort of understanding it properly. So that, you know, really interested me that, you know, there was this big disease that was affecting a quarter of our population and uh, maybe we didn't really understand it properly. So yeah, that that sort of stimulated my interest to go um, hit the books, look at the research and put that together with, you know, people's real time, um, real world experience of how difficult it is. We can all lose a bit of weight by, you know, starving ourselves, but actually in a year or two years, can you actually totally readjust your weight by a significant amount it's really really difficult almost impossible by conventional methods
0: yeah and you've kind of answered my next question already regarding the um your book why we eat too much the new science of appetites and i wanted to know a bit more about how that book came about was did you always have this idea that okay after i've done this work i would love to share this in a book and publish a book uh
1: so basically, I was doing a lot of research into you know, this question, why why can't people lose weight? Why do they have to come to bariatric surgery? Um, and it was sort of all um, coming together as a really sort of you know, eloquent explanation. Basically, um, the, the theory of the book is that you know calories are the secondary thing, the energy that we take in as a secondary, the, the main thing that's in charge of our body is our our hormones and you know our hypothalamus, our brain will 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 fix our weight to a particular point. So when this was all coming together, I started to do lectures to GPs and many of them, you know, came to me and said, oh, you need to write a book on this. Um, so that's when I sort of thought about, yeah, okay, maybe write a book. I then requested a year sabbatical from the NHS. Um, so I took a year off. Um, and I was sort of with the reason to write a book. So I was sort of then cornered. I had to, I had the time off, so I had to do it. It It's actually really difficult to write a book, but, um, and I can't believe I did it. I I was never a big English person at school, but, um, yeah, it's one of those things when you, when you have a burning question, um, it didn't feel like work. It felt like really interesting.
0: Mm. And what is it that people can expect to learn from this book? Is there also i suppose actionable advice in there that people can apply to their own lives after learning some of this information that you just spoke about
1: yeah so i i I sort of wanted to write the book just on how the body works, how our metabolisms you know adjust to whether we're overeating or undereating um and then a little bit of history about the history of food and why we find ourselves in a situation where you know we're surrounded by you know processed foods basically um and I submitted that to penguin the publishers but they said well look we we sort of want some the readers will want a little bit of advice so I then went back and we did part three of the book um which does give you know uh, practical advice on what to do to reset your weight so the whole thesis of the book uh, I'm sure you to ask me is about the weight set point. so every individual has their own Specific weight that their body wants them to be, and their body's going to like fight, you know, with everything to try and keep them at that weight or get them back to that weight. Um, part three of the book looks at, you know, how you can adjust that weight setting if it's too high, adjust it down by lifestyle and uh, and some dietary measures, and mm-hmm. you get long term weight loss without any effort.
0: <clears throat> and I think it's—is it referred to as a weight anchor? Is it? Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, there's a lot of different terms for it. But I think a good analogy is like a weight anchor. So basically, you you sort of moored at that weight, uh, and you can sort of um, you can imagine that that's your weight setting, your weight anchor, and it's almost like you've got a an elasticated rope tied to that weight anchor, and the further you try and diet yourself away from it, the stronger the pull back to it, um, and that. You know that pullback is to do with our, our metabolism. So that's the, you know, the amount of energy we use up even before we move. So this is heating our bodies, chemical reactions, breathing, heartbeat, that sort of thing. It actually takes up most of our energy. Seventy percent of our energy is taken up even before we move, um, <clears throat> and that can adjust, you know, up and down by up to seven hundred kilocalories between people of the, of similar sizes uh, per day. So you sort of you know, this is something. This is over. This is more than a 10k run, or like quite a big, you know, two three course meal. Uh, 700 kilocalories a day. You're fighting against that. Your body can adjust that and just say, okay, you know, you're dieting. You're taking 700 kilocalories off. Uh, we're going to we're going to just adjust to that. We're going to uh, adapt our body because you're not eating as much because we don't want hey uh, the body. The body's control system doesn't want to lose much weight. So you get these people that I've seen who. Maybe they were really obese, maybe 25 stone, they get down towards 20 stone with you know, some extreme diet. Diet, But they're still on 1,000 or 1,200 kilocalories and they're stuck at 20 stone. And, it's beca- and the GP won't understand metabolic regulation and will say, well, you must be cheating. But actually, if you understand metabolic regulation, yeah, they are complying to the diet around 1,200 kilocalories a day and they're 20 stone and they're stuck. And not only are they stuck, but actually they have the, you know, the terrible side effects of the diet, such as, you know, real lassitude and tiredness combined with um, massive hunger and food-seeking behaviour. And almost, you know, the further away you get from your set point, it, it can almost be, you know, it takes over your life thinking about food. Mm-hmm. And the, the, um, the book, you know, uh, mentions the Minnesota the, the Minnesota Starvation Experiments, um, which you know looked at uh, what happens when you starve volunteers, volunteer humans, and what happens to their, their psychological, you know, uh, focus and well-being. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's pretty hard to lose weight and sustain weight and sustain weight loss if your weight is set to a higher level than it actually is at that time.
0: And is it genetics that initially sets that weight anchored? Is it something inherited from, say, your parents?
1: Yeah, so um it's a combination of genetics and envir- environment. There's another thing called epigenetics, which I sort of won't get into, but um that's mentioned in the book, which is yeah, quite a new emerging area where, you know, the genes actually Change slightly, so you, we think we just in, inherit our sort of genes for our height and eye our, our colour from our parents. But actually there's a lot of other things, and they can a lot of other genes, such as your, your appetite, you know, your metabolism, your propensity to diabetes, this sort of thing. They can be changed slightly depending on you know uh, the conditions that your mother was in when she was when you were in the womb it's almost like a, uh, it's described as a, like a, a marinade of the genes to try and you know predict a future environment so i epigenetics, genetics but i don't want to get any more into that it's quite complicated uh, but very very interesting so yeah it's genetics and environments genetics probably make up you know 70 75 percent of the predisposition to whether you're going to struggle or not with your weight so if you're from a family that suffer with obesity um, it's much more likely you're going to suffer as well. But the whole point of the book is you can have those genes, but they're only triggered, the weight gain is only triggered when you're exposed to a sort of Western-type diet and lifestyle. Uh, And, yeah, there's been a lot of studies proving that, you know, genetics... Um, account for a significant amount of where weight's gonna be, so there was, many different countries have got these sets of identical twins in databases, and um, they're really interesting to study because there's two people with absolutely identical genetic makeup, and um, certainly UK study, Jane Wardle, one of the researchers at UCLH, um, looked at 300 pairs of identical twins that had been adopted and brought up in different home environments, then she looked at them about 30 years down the line when they were adults and found that there was a 75% concordance with their weight. So just as you would expect them to be the same height, because they're identical twins, they're actually quite similar size. Some of them skinny, pear, some of them overweight, some of them obese, despite being brought up in different home environments.
0: Yeah. And if we have this weight point and it's something that you inherit, is there a way to alter that at all? And does that say change as you gradually get older as well
1: yes as i sort of mentioned so you've got that genetic predisposition to gain weight in the uh when you're exposed to a westernized industrialized you know um processed diet Uh, but if you take that that diet away then um it's likely your weight set point is going to reduce again Probably if you've got obese genes or overweight genes or heavy bones, as as the old-fashioned word was, it's unlikely you're going to get to size 6 or 8 if you're a woman or skinny if you're a guy. Um, But you can certainly get down towards normal weight if you uh, go back to eating a more traditional diet.
0: And do you think this is why, well, one of the big reasons is why most people do fail diets? Because I suppose it's lack of knowledge about this research that you've done.
1: Yeah, it is, um, and it's because you know the, the the understanding of of weight loss is is too simplified. So it really is, you know. I mean, it's the first law of thermodynamics. It does. You can't deny it. The fact that if you put energy into a system um, and take some out, it's the difference between the two is going to be stored. Okay, so that's sort of you can't argue with that. That that's there. But the the issue is that our metabolism, our own, the amount of energy that we burn is not under our conscious control, that's under control of our weight control center and our hypothalamus, and it is really powerful. And not only that, not just the amount that we burn, but also, you know, our food seeking behavior, which, uh, so actually, the, you know, the drive to, to take calories in, is not, it, it, it's, it's under subconscious control and it can't be controlled by us. And these hormones are, um, you know, they're pretty strong. They're as strong as a thirst hormone. So it's like, it's a little bit, I mean, another maybe um, sort of slightly cheeky analogy would be, okay, if you want to lose, you know, two kilograms, why don't you stop drinking water? And yeah, you can probably lose two kilograms by stop drinking water for two or three days, for a couple of days. Um, but you're gonna get an absolute parched thirst and it's gonna take over your thoughts and you're not gonna produce any urine at all. And eventually you're gonna drink uh, and get back to you know, your, your fluid weight setting. In a similar way, yeah, you can, you know, in the short term, alter the amount of energy that you want on board, the amount of fat that you want on board, but in the longer term, the body's gonna take control and say, I'm sorry, you have to eat now, Um, and we're not gonna burn any energy until we have eaten. So it's similar to those systems. Um, uh, So we we do have, it's it's a little more more complicated than just, yeah, we can just go down to the gym and go on a diet. As I say, yeah, short term, two, three weeks, you can probably cope and lose a little bit, but you're gonna put it back on.
0: So what is the main areas people should be focusing on then? is it If, if, if there is a lot of this information they've just consumed is, is talking about the, a lot of genetics um, tying to it and the weight anchor and uh, metabolism and things like that.
1: So you have to look at um, what sort of determines the weight setting um, or the weight anchor. And in people who go a long life with a relatively stable weight, Um, for you know years and decades they have a hormone from their fat cells that is working to maintain a specific weight for them and this hormone is called leptin and we need to understand this hormone before we can understand you know what we can do in a diet to to help that work so yeah um, leptin comes from fat cells Uh, the more fat you have the higher the level of leptin in your blood Okay, so it just comes, the more fat you, you have, the higher the leptin level. And the the level of leptin is read by, again, the hypothalamus in your brain, which controls your weight. Uh, and it's sort of like, it will it will understand, yeah, we've got enough energy on board, you know, to, to withstand two months of not eating, we're okay. Or one month of not eating, we're okay. Um, or we don't have enough energy, you know, we've only got a couple of days supply. Let's, you know, so, the, the leptin signal is telling the hypothalamus you know, what the current state of energy supply in the body is. Um, when we eat particular types of food or have particular types of stresses, that leptin signal gets you know, diluted and obscured. Um, so for instance, uh, when you get to a, to a point of uh, a specific point of obesity it's it really does start to go wrong the feedback system you know the body telling us how much energy we have and i start regulating the amount of food we we eat it starts to go wrong it's called leptin resistance and the the further you get into obesity the more obese you get you know the more uh difficult it gets because you know the leptin is it it, it even though the leptin level in your blood is, is sky high because you've got a lot of fat and energy on board, it's not being seen by the hypothalamus. Um, so you get this situation where um, most people who are, are really suffering with obesity will regularly binge eat on rubbish, um, and they will blame themselves um, and think they're like you know, an addictive, you know, weak-willed person. And they will usually do the binge eating in, in private because it's embarrassing. But that binge eating is driven by this, you know, this, this, the fact that leptin is obscured in the hypothalamus, and they're getting signals that they're starving to death because they, the, the hypothalamus can't see the leptin anymore. It's like, you know, we have to eat; we have a voracious appetite. So this is the, the total breakdown in in the messaging system that occurs in in obese people. Now, one of the main, one of the main things in in the diet that starts to block leptin is insulin. So when we have a population uh, who, you know, are given from, going from traditional foods to a Western Western type food um, where there is a lot more sugar and a lot more refined carbohydrate like wheat. So, you know, bread, pasta, cakes, biscuits, sweet drinks. If we, you know, if we supply a population that type of food, the average insulin level of that population will increase, and insulin, you know, acts to um, it basically it binds with leptin for, for signalling. So it's, it signals in the same place. So the more insulin you have on board, the less the leptin is going to get read. So if you if you give a population you know, sugar and fine carbohydrates, um, some of that population uh, their weight setting is going to go higher because the leptin isn't being read. And as the book you know, discusses, you know, this is this is this is what farmers do to to cows to to fatten them up. They give them a, a grain and actually fat um, um, feed, and they will find actually the you know if they change the food from natural foods to these sort of processed type foods, you know, the herd's can get bigger faster. So you can't turn around and blame obese people for being obese. You know when it's, it's the food the, the quality of the food that they're eating is the thing that's changing their you know their hormonal uh, uh, feedback mechanism and making it go wrong so this is why we have like a real misunderstanding of an you know, obesity crisis <laughs> mm. and, <laughs> and the first we- thing um that we can do and that is in part three of the book. And it's it's common sense and we know it works anyway, but now we know why it works. If you give up sugar and you give up bread and refined carbohydrates, you don't lose weight because you're taking in less calories. You lose weight because your insulin signal is less and your body can see leptin. You know, it can see actually, whoa, you've got too much energy on board. You know, like let's, um, Let's, let's calm down the appetite and um, you know, increase the metabolism. And this is what happens. So when people, give, when people who you know, are artificially almost artificially obese because they have so much sugar and refined carbohydrate and they give it up, they just lose weight without any effort at all. No hunger, nothing. <clears throat> so that's the first, sort of the first part of the book uh, as far as the advice is concerned, to try and give up. Or reduce sugar and uh, refined carbohydrates.
0: Mm. And another aspect to that, I know that the book uses this example of the Inuit Eskimos, and it looks about how um, fat, that they're on a high fat diet, but they've got low levels of obesity. And I know as a society, we see fat as almost like um, a bad thing, and I suppose the enemy initially, and that's not the case. And that's something you've, you've spoke about as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so it's the Inuit Eskimos and the Maasai uh, warriors in in Kenya have basically a diet of uh, fat and meat. So it's a carnivorous diet, basically. So I think the Eskimos just eat, you know, mainly whale blubber, whale fat. They have very low rates of obesity and cardiovascular disease. Um, but we in uh, our sort of scientific circles and just generally in Western society have um, been fed a lot of research over the years and a lot of news reports linking saturated fat, so a juicy steak or you know too much cheese or too many eggs, with cardiac disease and obesity. So if you have too much fat, you know it's going to clog up your blood vessels and also it's got too many calories in and you should avoid it. And this is ingrained in most people living in Western societies. They're really, you know, they're really scared of natural saturated fat and dairy products. So, you know, butter's, butter's making a comeback now because people are realizing actually it's not quite as bad as people think, but butter was demonized, you know, uh, 10, 15 years ago even. Hardly anyone bought butter. Um, the book, goes back on the history of that research, and it all sort of um, originated from this, you know, big scientific debate in the late 60s when there was a, you know, a real rise in cardiovascular disease in America. It sort of transpired that that rise was because everyone was smoking a lot more and it was like post-war and, you know, that, that was coming through. But at the time they wondered whether it was something in the diet, and there were two scientific camps. One was saying sugar, caused cardiovascular disease and one was saying saturated fat Um, and the sort of research and debate went on for years and was eventually sort of won by by the by the fat lobbies by proving won by the sugar lobby actually proving that fat caused cardiovascular disease by actually research that's subsequently um been proven to be you know slightly fraudulent certainly you know um Selection bias would be would be what I would describe, uh, you know, cherry picking results and just putting it in to to to, to go with a, a specific conclusion that you want. So there was a lot of industry drive from the sugar industry, you know, funding research, you know, demonising fat because sugar industry didn't want sugar to be demonised. Um, and this was then perpetuated, and more recently has been perpetuated by the statin industry, which is a, like three billion. Dollar a year industry, so it's a massively profitable industry. Trying to link, you know, our perception that cholesterol specifically is a marker for cardiovascular disease, um, it's a really, really weak marker. You've got to look at, and again, this is explained, yeah, you know, with some good analogies in the book to make it understandable, you know, cholesterol. Total cholesterol level is is you know it's almost worthless you, unless you have you know a hereditary high cholesterol like one in 500 people have proper high cholesterol from familial perspective, but if you just look at cholesterol, you're not going to get a very good marker of cardiac risk. You need to look at the subunits of cholesterol. So, high density. So the big cholesterol and the small cholesterol low density, and then the small cholesterol is in type A and type B, and there's only one particular small particle that gives you a cardiac risk. So um, there's a there's a whole smokescreen screen put up by the you know, statin industry to try and perpetuate our you know and GPs underst- uh, 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 understanding that cholesterol causes cardiac disease, and therefore we need to give statins for it. It's actually, I'm extremely cynical about it. Statins work as an anti-inflammatory tool. Statins do decrease your risk of cardiac events. They work, we know that. But they don't work by reducing cholesterol. That's just a side effect of the drug. They work because they're anti-inflammatory drugs. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm going back to, you know, why, why why does this relate to obesity? Well, the government in the 80s told the, you know, the population and the food industry to take saturated fat away from them. Decreased saturated fat is going to kill you. And people started eating sugar and refined carbohydrates and grains instead. And then that uh, perfectly coincided with the rise in obesity starting in the early 80s was our you know, demonization of saturated fat. So um, I mean, the book sets out the history of all this, I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, we keep it you know pretty pretty light and just really interesting. Um, but basically, a lot of people really struggle with going lowish carb, which is going to help your weight step point because you know there's nothing else to eat. Is it just protein? But if you embrace saturated, natural saturated fat, so we're talking about dairy products and you know meat. Um, if you are, if you do eat meat, if you embrace that, then actually, you know that new new way of eating really good food lowish carb not not massive amounts of potatoes or rice you know fill up the plate with fat and, um, and protein instead of vegetables if you can do that then you know the new way of eating is actually quite enjoyable and filling um, when i talk about saturated fat again some of the research has been obscured by the fact that they put, you know, palm oil which is like, which is a saturated fat but it's really processed, you know, totally processed and it has a really nice um, feel about it Um, and it's really good for cooking cakes. So it's in all processed cakes and things and some of the, you know, uh, research linking saturated fat to cardiac disease has, you know, included that in, in its research so palm oil is bad for you, but that has muddied the waters as far as you know p- Proper natural dairy products and you know uh, red meat
0: <clears throat> mm. and I've got two questions on the back of the answer so I might backtrack a little bit depending on um, your answer but um, Does this necessarily mean that there is a big miscommunication and uh, I suppose misinformation um issue where you've got these different industries feeding you messages. You might have like the dieting industry saying you need to diet, you know, the government's giving you one message and then also you've got these big industries also like the sugar industry, which I'm guessing are still have a saying saying things, feeding us all these mixed messages.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think industry I mean there's a lot of industries that survive on the old myth that it is people's fault that they're obese and if they pull themselves together and went on a diet and went down the gym, you know the population would suddenly be better and basically they're saying the obesity crisis is is like a sudden weak willedness of the population um and they want to perpetuate that myth that actually it's not it's not the food it's actually people's willpower that is you know causing causing this problem so we're talking about the the gym industry, which is fantastically massive on the back of the fact that everyone's struggling to maintain their weight so they're making massive profits from you know the fact that the obesity crisis um that obviously the food industry are making massive profits these, these foods are hedonic they're like addictive they're like you know manufactured and researched in in laboratories food laboratories to get to a specific you know perfect point of you know hedonic you know, pleasure for particular types of food. You know, they're, they're researched like new drugs, basically. Uh, so the food industry massively, um, they, they want that perpetuated that, you know, it's like, um, it's the person's fault that they, they're suffering with obesity. And finally, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, a lot of uh, Western, uh, actually a lot of most Western and, you know, developing country diseases are caused by, the change in the diet um, in the last you know, 30, 40 years. So both, both obesity, which causes you know, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, sleep apnea, increasing risk of cancer, all these things. But also inflammatory conditions, which is sort of mentioned slightly in the book. Um, so things like um, inflammatory bowel disease um, and some autoimmune type diseases like asthma, all of those are contributed to by you know, a Western diet. Uh, So the pharmaceutical industry as well. I don't think there's a deliberate effort. I don't think people have sort of thought this through and thought, okay, yeah, we know actually, we know what's really going on, uh, but we want to like obscure it. But, you know, it's the self-interest is, you know, um, to carry on the status quo and not really look into it too deeply. Maybe I'm being cynical and maybe uh, uh, that's just the way I see it. I certainly had some some dealings with the food industry, and uh, they want to look like they're helping, um, but actually you know the, the main thing is they a, they're, a, they're, a, they're, a, they're companies they need to make a profit um, so yeah, this is the whole problem with in in a way it's an existential problem of of sort of capitalism is you know uh, governments are there to protect the health of the people. We've seen this in the COVID crisis. They've, they've done a fantastic job. You know, they've, they've, they've put a lot of resources and massive amounts of money into protecting the population. Um, but you know, they haven't done that for the obesity crisis and it's because um, the, well, my sort of cynical view is that the food lobbyists are very powerful and they want to perpetuate the myth that it's not you know the type of food that the population is given that causes this terrible health crisis. But you know, the weak-willedness and laziness of that population. Um, so if, and the thing is, the industries, they can employ, you know, really clever scientists and uh, uh, very persuasive lobbyists, um, and they've got a lot of money. So this is almost like a, the failure of, you know, uh, uh, the way our society works a little bit
0: i don't I know I don't like that. no 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 that's i find it really fascinating really interesting to to hear you talk about all that because it is it is quite eye-opening and shocking when you do kind of understand it and are made more aware of aware of the facts um and just before we tie things up i just wanted to also talk about another element that i know the book looks at, and it's that whole environmental factors which i know you spoke about previously but i just wanted to know a bit more about this and how the environment can really affect our bodies um, in these situations where we're where it's for instance not talking about what we consume, just more the environmental factor
1: yeah so there's a um, there's a chapter in the book which looks at particular times that stimulate people to suddenly gain weight uh, particular times in life and these times are really scary, so these are people who you know they've gone through maybe the first twenty. 25, 30 years of their life not really worrying about their weight, you know, their leptin is working, you know, it's the body recognises how much fat they've got on board and just is able to self-regulate subconsciously. And then something happens in their life and suddenly their weight starts to go up. They start to get worried about it, they start dieting and their weight just goes up and up and up. And it becomes really scary because suddenly their weight isn't under their control anymore. <clears throat> and the particular times in life mentioned in the book. So the first one is leaving leaving home, uh, maybe going to university or like going to a job elsewhere. Other times are getting married, um, doing night shifts, uh, migrating to a different country. All of these things for particular reasons mentioned in the book, Um, make your weight set point go upwards. Um, Example would be leaving home. That will increase your <clears throat> so going to university whatever college that's been proven to increase you know people's weight uh, students' weight settings, so a lot of students will put on like, half a stone five kilograms or something occasionally it'll get you know even more uh, and it's traditionally been blamed on you know they're drinking too much alcohol actually the research out there suggests that it's an increase in cortisol secretion, so this is the stress hormone. Um, if I was to if I was to start treating you Connor with with cortisol and you had a stable weight beforehand in two months you're going to be a stone heavier. Doesn't matter what you try you're going to be you know your body's just going to be you know, want to be heavier. So cortisol works in the same way via stress, not via being administered to someone. So if you have a situation in life where cortisol level goes up, you know you just want to eat more. The body wants to store more energy because it's scared that something's happened. And if you go back to um, <clears throat> you know, hunter-gatherer times, you know, caveman times. This is probably, you know, a really good survival mechanism. If you're setting off on a long migration or, or something stressful is happening, it's probably quite good that your weight setting is is like notched upwards. Yeah, you're going to go out and look for more food, get more calories on board because something is happening that's scaring you. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, just one of the particular um, uh, areas looked at where suddenly you get runaway weight gain and what happens with these people is um, They put on the stone. They think oh god, you know, I've got to like get back to where I was before I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go on a diet and Restrict calories, you know, and they do lose a bit of weight, but then you know the body adapts to that Then when they put the weight back on their weight setting Is higher than it was before the diet? And this is something that is so consistent amongst all these people that I've spoken to uh, who recurrently diet. They put the weight back on and more. And again, you go back to why is that? And again, you go back to maybe hunter gatherer times when we were developing as, as humans um, and food wasn't you know, there all the time. So if you have a situation where food was abundant but suddenly there is a famine and people lose weight, and then it becomes abundant again, then, you know, that's fed into the database of your brain to say, well, hang on, yeah, I think maybe we need a little bit more energy on board in cases of hamming next time. And this is why the weight setting or your weight goes even higher after you come off a diet because you've, you've given the brain that data. Okay, we're in an environment where every six months, there seems to be some really weird, like two, three weeks of, not eating anything or not eating much and this is how this is how the body interprets diet as a famine
0: and um, I've only got a couple more questions to to ask you and the first is um, after people have listened to this podcast and all this information and picked up the book and what what food should they try and um, try and eat and incorporate more into their diet is it is it what a lot of people know in just you know healthy vegetables less carbs less sugar things like that.
1: that. Yeah. So it's sort of set out in a book that you should, um, eat. I I think uh, I say that if you got your food from, uh, the equivalent of the old fashioned greengrocers, butchers and fishmongers. So if you eat just vegetables, meat, fish and dairy products mostly, uh, and you cook the food and you have two or three good meals a day and you don't avoid saturated fat, um, then your weight setting will come down over the long term the the last bit of the book talks about so you do that so you get rid of carbs you get rid of, of wheat if you can there is a, a section from a psychologist uh who i work with jackie talking about you know how actually because a lot of people it's like giving up sugar is like giving up cigarettes or alcohol it's like it does have a hedonic attachment to it so it can it is it has an addictive drive so there is uh, a small section of the book on how to cope with those, you know, those cravings. But if you can give up the, the sugar in the week, go back towards natural natural foods and cook it, your weight will come down. And then the final part of the, the chapter looks at then starting to address you know, your total carbohydrate, your total sugar content in the natural foods. So your sugar, sorry, your, your potatoes your rice and stuff like that. And trying to get that down from an average of like 300, grams of sugar that we normally eat per day down towards 100. Um, and then maybe if you can, depending on if you exercise or not, um, getting it down to 80 and 60, and all of those things are going to reduce your weight setting. So you have a lowish carb, not so low that you feel terrible, but a lowish carb diet that you just get used to. And natural foods, you know, in the longer term, your weight setting is going to like go down. And without going on any diet, you're just going to lose weight. And without calorie counting, you're going to lose weight. So that's the sort of dietary side of things. Um, and it talks a little bit about, you know, de stressing, decreasing your cortisol level and sleeping well as well, um, which again will, you get some people that are so stressed. Um, I've had people who even have done bariatric surgery on. So I've removed two thirds of their stomach and they're still, you know, intransigent to losing weight despite, you know, not eating hardly anything. But you can tell they're very stressed. They can't stop talking, they've got a stressful job, whatever. And it's because this cortisol is is within them. It's still, it's keeping hold of their weight. Their body is in a battle. It doesn't want them to to lose that energy because they're intrinsically, subconsciously scared. Something's going on, they're stressed. So your cortisol is really, really important. You've got to try and relax and change the way you you, you eat. And then the weight will just readjust downwards. I've got many, many uh, colleagues and friends and acquaintances that... uh, I've tried this just change in eating and it's fantastic it's like okay I was struggling for so long before I'm I'm okay now I'm like I'm back to to normal weight
0: yeah I find it really fascinating and um if people have to li- listen to this would like to get a copy of your book where's the best place is it via your website or amazon or where's best for you
1: Amazon's taken over the world, but um, yeah, it seems to be quite easy to get it on Amazon. But also the website, either my website, just seem to just um, Google my name, Andrew Jenkinson. I think it's AndrewJenkinson.com. Actually, uh, you can do it via there. Actually, no, that link goes through to Amazon as well. So, but all good bookshops, including Tesco's apparently. So um, enjoy.
0: I hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode with Dr. Andrew Jenkinson. This podcast is now available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms. If you would like to follow us on social media or find the links to other platforms this podcast is on, then all the links can be found in the description of this episode or on the 99% Lifestyle website. At the end of each interview I conduct, I ask the interviewee to give me five recommendations for our audience. This can be from books you should read, musicians you haven't heard of before, podcasts you should listen to, or other creatives and professionals you should follow the work of. These recommendations are sent out as a free newsletter each and every week to the 99% Lifestyle newsletter subscribers. At the time of recording this we have published 170 issues of the newsletter and all of the issues are archived and can be read on the website. We have this massive curated collection of recommendations over there now. If you would like to read Andrew's recommendations then head over to the 99% Lifestyle website, which is 99percentlifestyle.com, and sign up as his issue will be sent out in the near future. By signing up, it's also the best way to keep updated with everything going on with this podcast and 99 percent lifestyle. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. We'll be back very soon with episode 11.